Well, hello, everybody. Welcome. My name is Joe. I'm an associate minister here at Real Life, and it's my pleasure to uh, be sharing with you uh, a continuation of a series that we started last week, uh, Summer on the Mount. However, it does not feel like summer. I do not enjoy this weather. It should be hot outside and sunny on Father's Day, so unfortunately, no golfing and uh, muggy. How many of you appreciate the, the rain right now? All right, all right. You're not my people, but that's okay. I'm I'm glad you're here, and uh, happy Father's Day to, to all the fathers in the house. We're glad to have you. Uh, we're going to jump right in. Last week, uh, Justin introduced us uh, to the Sermon on the Mount, is uh, what we're going to be going through this summer, uh, exploring Jesus' sermon uh, that uh, was given. We have it recorded in Matthew's Gospel. We have, also have a portion of it, a scaled-down version of it in Luke's Gospel, but Matthew has the long version, and uh, there's a lot of content that's going to be shared over the next few weeks. Uh, 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 Matthew uh, 5, uh, 6, 7, uh, and there's a lot of information. And um, there's a couple ways that people think about this Sermon on the Mount, the way scholars look at this is um, a couple different ways. One, uh, most people think that that, uh, Jesus was up on on the hillside, which which it says he was, and and then he just gave this long sermon, which which he probably did in in many different ways. times, and that uh, sometimes we think in our minds that uh, Matthew might have just been sitting there, like, you know, dictating, like, okay, you know, listening the whole time. Um, actually, that, that's probably not what happened. Uh, uh, Matthew's gospel was written um, in the 60s, uh, so roughly 30-ish years after Jesus uh, had died, resurrected, uh, resurrected and ascended. Uh, the church was going, so Matthew's writing this gospel. Most likely, uh, this, this was a sermon that Jesus preached in many different cities. So as he traveled, as a traveling uh, minister and, and, and preaching, he would go into different cities and different towns, and he would preach this message or variations of this message. And so the disciples would have heard this hundreds of times over the course of three years of following Jesus. So this would have been embedded in, into the mind of Matthew and his ability to recall this in the way that he does uh, would have just been secondhand for him because it would have shaped him so thoroughly, uh, would have been a part of his whole uh, worldview and the way that he understood the world, that, that uh, what he shares with us is what we have. It is the words of Jesus. And, uh, and we're going to be exploring this. Last week, Justin launched us out through the Beatitudes. Uh, This is the way that the kingdom of God is to operate. These are like the marching orders for the kingdom of God. Justin talked about the upside down kingdom. Uh, Jesus's way stands in opposition to the kingdom that they found themselves in, primarily the Greco-Roman world, the Roman empire that they lived in. And so these things that Jesus is talking about here is, is a way of living that is in opposition or what seems to be upside down uh, way of existing. Uh, uh, so we, you have this list of behaviors, these ways, ways of being. And then Jesus moves on to a series of teachings. And what we're going to discover as we go through this series is that Jesus at the core is dealing with heart issues. Things that are going inside of the things that we believe, the, thing, the way that we see the world, it's about a change of heart. Jesus will continue to say, you've heard it said. This is, this is the way that people used to operate. This is what I'm telling you to do, which is always a reflection of what's inside of our hearts. And so we're going to be unpacking that a lot more in the weeks to come. But 
We're going to move through, and um, this next set of teachings from Jesus uh, is uh, through the lens of witness. And we're going to be unpacking how these next two statements from Jesus, uh, how they reflect on the idea of witness or being a witness. And I got to be honest with you, when I think of the word witness, a lot of things begin to run through my mind. The tradition that I became a Christian in and, and, and started going to church, witness was a very loaded word. Um, it meant something like me learning a, a set of statements or scripture verses that would eventually lead someone into making a decision to follow Jesus. And so I spent my early uh, years in uh, being a Christian learning things like the Romans road to salvation. Anybody learn that at some point in your life? I mean, it's an old, old teaching, but it's like, you know, you can walk through these stages in Romans, Romans 3.23 and 5.23, and, and for all of sin and fallen short of the glory of God, and, you know, and these things that, that you could lead someone through to eventually making a decision to follow Jesus. And so then the, the idea of witness for me was, was literally like standing on the street and talking to people at random, which, which I used to do uh, as, a, as a young kid. I was eager to, to, to share Jesus, and so I learned these things. That was witness. And, and then what would happen is that oftentimes there would be a sermon uh, at church, uh, once a year maybe, that, that um, uh, offered this challenge. How many people did you win to Jesus this past year? And then what would happen is a lot of shame and guilt would, would come into my heart because I would go, uh, well, I don't know, maybe zero. And so all of a sudden, this idea of witness that was supposed to be this exciting, great thing became something that brought shame and guilt into my life because now I felt like maybe, maybe I'm letting God down. Maybe Jesus is disappointed with me because, gosh, I hadn't, I hadn't led anyone to him, like in, in a sinner's prayer kind of a idea. And this was the mentality I had, that I had to walk someone through a sinner's prayer where I pray over them and they repeat after me and they accept Jesus as their Lord and Savior and they're off and they're off running. And, uh, and that was witness um, in, in mine. And I don't know if you, you, you know, resonate with that idea, but just to be honest, that's where it came from me. So witness was always this weird fully loaded word that, that, that sometimes was, I, I was eager, I wanted to, to participate in, but off, oftentimes bought, brought shame in, in my life because I felt like I was never doing it well or doing it good enough. I was never living up to the idea that I thought you were supposed to do because witness for me was all about transaction. It was a transaction that I was trying to get people to make. And so all my engagement in witnessing was about getting the transaction. If the transaction didn't happen, I felt like I failed. And so I'm going to argue this morning, uh, well, not argue, I'm going to present a different point of view, that maybe witness isn't as much about a transaction as it is a lifestyle that you live. Now, you might be thinking, oh, Joe, that's, of course that is. Like, that was revolutionary to me when I started unpacking that. That witness isn't as much a transaction, which sometimes it may include, but it's more about a lifestyle. And I believe that Jesus in this next set of teachings begins to present that to the audience of what it looks like to be a witness. So let's read together. This is gonna be Matthew chapter five, verse 13. If you've been at church in any 
point in your life, at any period of uh, longevity, you've, you've heard this before. Jesus says this, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp, put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Immediately, we have Jesus launching into two sets of teachings, salt and light. And what I believe that Jesus is doing here is he is addressing two of the most fundamental questions that humans have been asking since the very beginning of human existence. This is the most primal question that we all ask at some point in our life and have continued to ask every human since the beginning has been asking these two questions. Who am I? Why am I here? The two most primal questions. Who am I? And what am I doing here? Why am I here? Another way to think of these two words is, what is my identity and what's my vocation? What is my identity? Who am I? And why am I here? What's my vocation? What am I supposed to be doing and and I'll be honest I I battle with this to this day there are different rhythms of my life where I I wrestle with my identity am I good enough am I am I what Jesus wants me to be am I who who am I am I doing the right thing and 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 and, and my own self-worth and and then I battle with my vocation like am am I where God wants me to be am I am I making him happy with the choices that I'm making in my life and, 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 and am I serving him well? And, and, and these are questions that from, you know, people come to me all the time, especially in that young adult um, about to graduate high school, ask this question like, what, I'm just trying to figure out what God has for me. What does God want for me? They're, they're trying to find a purpose, an identity. And we're gonna unpack that. But I believe that Jesus is, is confronting these two questions in these two verses, and I want to unpack them for you this morning and find out how they're connected and what does that mean for us in terms of being a witness. So let's start with the first one. You are salt. You are salt. Our identity. You are salt. What is salt? Now, Sometimes there are statements made in the text that can just kind of, you know, we pass over because we didn't live, you know, we're not living at their time and, and the, the power and the meaning of a word sometimes can be lost on us because salt for me is that thing like I, I put on my steak, right? You know, a few hours before I'm going to grill it, right? You know, it's the thing, it's, it's just, it's there, it's around the house, it's easy to get to, it's accessible, it's everywhere. Uh, there's, there's all the different kinds of salt. You can do sea salt, coarse salt, fine salt, you know, Himalayan pink salt, like all these different things that you can have. So it's just this idea of you are salt, it doesn't carry a weight 
that I think it carried to this audience that would heard it. So I want us to take a moment. We're going to put our minds into the place of the people hearing this for the first time. To hear Jesus say, you are salt. What is salt? You see, in the ancient world, salt was very valuable. It was very important. It changed the game in the ancient world. It allowed um, uh, people to not uh, uh, rely simply on uh, seasonal foods because salt preserved things. It allowed food to travel from one location to another. They were able to ship food because of salt. Salt was so important in the ancient world that in the Roman Empire, most soldiers took their pay not in money, but in salt. They would actually be paid in salt because it was so valuable to own. And so Roman soldiers, they would work and they would get paid a monthly allowance in salt. And that word is salarium, salarium, which we get from the Latin word sal, Salt, which means salt, and it's made its way into the English vocabulary coming from Latin to French to English is where we get the word salary, our monthly pay, our salary, comes from the word salt. This was huge and important. This is where we get the term, I don't know if you've ever heard the phrase, worth your salt. Anybody ever said, that's kind of an older, you know, like, but you're, you're not worth your salt, that's where this comes from, is that soldiers were paid in salt. That you, you, are you worth what you got paid, right? Are you worth your salt? In the ancient world, this was the hottest commodity to have. And Jesus, standing on a hillside, says, you are salt. You are, the, you are so valuable because of you, you bring flavor. You, you are the valuable thing to others and to the people around you. Jesus is addressing how we see ourselves. And sometimes, if we're honest, we don't see our, we look in the mirror and sometimes we struggle. And sometimes we, we have negative things to say. And Jesus looks at us and says, no, 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 don't you see? You are salt. You are so, so valuable. Jesus begins to say that you are the very thing that brings value and worth to our world. You bring value and worth to our world. How? How do we do that? Well, it actually begins in the beginning, in Genesis chapter 1. In Genesis chapter 1, as God moves through the creation order, he gets to the humans, and he makes this statement, so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. You are an image of the creator. Your value isn't wrapped up in the things that you do, but who you are connected to. You are salt because you are an image bearer. Because of who God is, your reflection of him, you are salt because you bear the marking of the image of the creator. You are. You are, he says. Not can be. Not will be eventually. You are the salt 
of the earth. You are, he says, the substance that brings value to people around you. You are salt. You are the valuable thing. Bring substance, value to people around you. So Jesus first affirms who they are. And then he moves into this concept of vocation. You are light. You are light. Why am I here? What is my purpose? What am I supposed to be doing? This can lead to so much frustration. What am I here to do? And that frustration comes from this idea that we connect our vocation oftentimes to the nine to five thing that we do. I.e., the job that I get is connected to this vocation that, that God has for me. And, and maybe there is a connection. Sometimes there is a connection. In my instance, I, I am blessed. I am blessed to do this, right? To, to meet with people, to, to walk alongside people as they grow in maturity in their own faith. And, uh, and I'm blessed. My, my nine to five is actually connected to what, what God has me doing, being a light bearer. But not often is that the case. Not often is that the case. And so it can lead to frustration, but I, but I, want, I want to open up our, our field of vision here to, to just say that Jesus begins to open up and says, your light and this vocation isn't connected to the simple nine to five. It's much bigger than that. Paul riffs on this idea. Paul riffs on this idea when he, in Colossians, he, he says this, in Colossians chapter three, verse 17, he says, and whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Whatever you do, right? When, when, when people come to me and they go, Joe, man, I'm just trying to, what, what, you know, I, I don't know, what does God want from me? And I go, what do you like to do? Like, just go do that. Like, I, I think sometimes we, we, we work ourselves up into frustration of, as if, like, I got to have this direct thing. And I think sometimes God's going, just, just go do what you like to do and be light. And I'm going to be there with you. Like, I'll bless that. What's in your heart? What, 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 you know, makes you alive? And God wants to delight in that. And so Paul here is riffing on this thing. He's like, whatever you do, whatever you do, do it. Do it for Jesus, right? This vocation isn't tied to this, like, particular thing, but it's tied to this reality of, of everything that we do. We have an ability to be light. We have an ability to be light. Once we embrace our identity, this idea that we are salt, we can then begin to move into our vocation of being a light bearer. And uh, we see this played out in Genesis chapter two. So if Genesis chapter one, I'm an image bearer, this is about my identity. Genesis chapter two actually addresses our vocation. Why am I here? You see, the two most primal questions that any human asks, who am I, why am I here? The Bible answers in the first two chapters. The Bible goes, let me tell you who you are. You're an image bearer. Why am I here? In Genesis chapter two, it says, the Lord took the man, put him in the garden to work it. And then he says, it's not good that you do this alone. You need a helper. 
And so our vocation is tied to something that we do on behalf of God. It's the reality of like, think about this for a second. Let this sink in. Because oftentimes we think of eternity as this reality where we're just sitting around, looking around and, and worshiping. And, and, and will that happen? Probably. But, but more true, we see here in Genesis 1-2 the perfect state of everything. God creates everything, it's good, right? He plants a garden, puts humans in it to work it. So the perfect reality for God was God and humans doing work together. And if that was the perfect reality, why would it be anything different when God fixes everything? The reality is, is that God always intended us to be workers, co-workers with him. Now, what that co-working looks like, right? That's unraveling in, in our lives as we go about living light bearers for God. But the truth is, is that we have work to do. There are things that we are to do with God and for God. He makes this statement, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. This phrase, good deeds. This, this uh, phrase is found all throughout the New Testament. It's tied, it means to uh, uh, acts of kindness and goodness. Acts of kindness and goodness. Things like being meek. Showing mercy. Being a peacemaker, which is different than being a peacekeeper. Uh, right? There are a lot of peacekeepers out there. Well, I'm not going to say anything because I just want everybody to hang out and get along. Right? He didn't say peacekeeper. He said peacemaker. Someone who brings peace and shalom into the environments that you exist in. Valuing marriage, telling the truth, uh, turning the other cheek, loving enemies, giving to the needy, refusing to judge others. These are all the good deeds. These are things that Jesus begins to unpack in the following chapters. These are all the things that we are to be and do. These are light-bringing activities. Letting our light shine is connected to the reality of the good deeds that we do. They're two sides of the same coin, our identity and our light bringing our identity, our salt and our light, our identity, our vocation. Why am I here, right? Who am I? These things are the same. They're connected to each other. When we understand who we are, we begin to then bring our light, which looks like good deeds, to those around us. And this is exactly what Jesus is unraveling before our eyes. Embracing our identity as salt and acting out Jesus' life, light-giving, good deeds can change the world. As we embrace who we are, we are salt. We are the thing that brings value and worth to the people around us. We are also to be light-bearers, which means to bring good deeds to those around us. And when those two things are happening— all of a sudden, the world begins to change. Jesus says that they may see your good deeds and glorify God. Somehow, your good deeds are, can be connected to people actually glorifying God. So what does this look like? Well, 
We're going to look for a second uh, historically. In the year 360 to 370, there was an emperor, his Emperor Julian. Emperor Julian was the last non-Christian uh, emperor to uh, be in Rome. He actually is after Constantine. Uh, uh, he was uh, Constantine's nephew, and um, but he he came into power and he was really the last emperor to persecute Christians. He did not like Christians. He wanted to return Rome back to its glory years of, of you know, in the early, you know, the years of Nero and, and, and all these, you know, uh, temple worship. And so he started closing down uh, churches uh, that were popping up all over the Roman Empire. He started closing them all down. He started seizing property of Christians. He started uh, taking over their buildings and putting in temples. He started replacing ministers and putting in priests, uh, uh, Greco-Roman priests, um, uh, pagan priests in place. He tried to get rid of the Christian movement. And what happened was that uh, in the year, again, 360-ish, uh, hard to precisely date, but, but somewhere in that range, he writes a letter to one of his pagan priests. And in this letter, he begins to lament about the movement of Christianity. And I want to read this letter to you so you can get an idea of what it looks like when good deeds change the world. This is Emperor Julian writing. Um, this is, comes from, it's a fragment of a letter to one of his priests. And I'm going to break it down in seg segments for you as, as we walk through it. But this is what he writes. He says, We must pay special attention to this point, and by this means effect a cure. And this cure, he, he, wants to, he wants to make a cure to the advancement of Christianity. Okay? So he says, uh, we need to uh, uh, find a cure to Christianity. He, go, he says this, For when it came about that the poor were neglected and overlooked by the priests, the pagan priests. When the poor were overlooked by the priests, then I think the impious Galileans, who are the Christians, observed this fact, they saw what was happening around, and they devoted themselves to philanthropy. Ah, can't get that word out. So essentially, Emperor Julian, he's saying, what happened was that our pagan priests were neglecting the poor and the needy. The Christians saw this, and they stepped up and started taking care of them. And Emperor Julian isn't happy about this. He goes on to say this, And they, being the Christians, have gained ascendancy in the works of their deeds through the credit, through the credit they win for such practices. So he's saying, they're growing because people are recognizing the deeds that they're doing, how they're taking care of people. They're actually gaining in popularity because of their good deeds. This is when it gets nasty. Listen to this. For just as those who entice children with cake and by throwing it to them, two or three times, induce them to follow them, and then, when they are far away from their friends, cast them on board a ship and sell them as slaves. By the same method, I say, the Galileans, the Christians, also 
begin with their so-called love feasts or hospitality or service of tables, for they have many ways of carrying it out and hence call it by many names. So let me stop there. He is now comparing the Christians that invite people in to share meals with them, which was a popular thing that Christians do. They would invite the whole community to come into their house. They called it love feasts, where people would come in and they would share meals together. It was a way, that, and, and they would welcome in the poor, they'd welcome in the needy, they'd welcome in the outcast, they'd welcome in the rich, they'd welcome in the slave, they'd welcome in the slave owner. Everyone was welcome to these slave, uh, or to these love feasts where they would eat together and share meals together. And Julian is comparing that kind of act like the people that are enticing kids away to sell them as slaves. He's saying it's like that. that that's how bad they are. They're just like the slave traders. Enticing everybody. Oh, they're doing these meals. Let's bring them in. And then listen to this. I love, I love how this ends. And the result is that they have led very many into atheism. Emperor Julian compares the non-worship of the pagan uh, uh, gods. If you don't worship them, you're essentially an atheist because you don't believe in the Roman gods. He's calling Christians atheists and leading people into atheism. That's hilarious. Here we have a situation where we see Christians making a dent in history by their good deeds. By their good deeds. What they did caused the emperor of the Roman Empire to write letters to try to find a cure for Christianity. Crazy. The power of when we know our identity and we know our vocation, when we recognize that we are salt and we are light, it changes the world. Many don't realize that most all the values that we celebrate in Western civilization come at the advancement of Christianity. And we, don't, we take that for granted in our world today. All the, the, the things that happen, like the, the social justices, the care for the needy and the poor, the things like uh, equality, all of these things came at the advancement of Christianity. These were, these were issues that, that no one cared about in the ancient world. Christians came along and said, no, we're going to do it different. Changed the world. They're good deeds. So my question what good deeds would make that kind of impact on our world today? What good deeds? Is it being meek? Is it forgiving others? Is it loving our enemies? Is it praying for those who persecute us? Is it turning the other cheek? Is it being a peacemaker, not simply a peacekeeper? What kind of good deeds would actually make a dent in our world today? Because that's what Jesus is calling us into. You are salt. You are light. As we close out, 
We're going to get ready for communion here. Um, before we do, I have a few thoughts to leave with you. Do we know, do we know, do you know your own worth? That's probably stated poorly up there. Yep. All right. I'll change that later. Do you know your own worth? Do you see yourself as salt? Do you accept the reality of what Jesus speaks over you? Do we add value to people around us through our deeds towards them? Are we willing to join the community of Jesus' people, serving and doing good deeds to each other and our larger community? This is the challenge set before us. As Jesus is about to launch into all the things that, that, you know, about our hearts and what prevents us from acting out in service and love towards people and towards God, he challenges them. You need to understand, if you're going to do this upside down kingdom stuff, you have to know your identity. You have to know who you are. You have to know why you're here. You are salt. You are light. How are you going to step into that reality this week? Like Paul says, whatever you do, whatever you do, how are you going to bring that reality to the world around you? What kind of good deeds would change our world today? That's the challenge.